makes perfect sense to take advantage of the places you happen to be or even have to be. Welcome to Sauce Talk. This is Billy Hansen, and today's episode is going to be an interview with my grandfather, Mike Boffman, who I call Opa. Uh, my Opa is a fascinating guy. Uh, him and I are very close, and I am really grateful for the relationship that I've had with him for so many years. Uh, a little bit about his background. He grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, as a high-level three-sport athlete playing football, basketball, and volleyball. And he took a scholarship to play wide receiver for Boston College in football and then earned a few pro tryouts when his college career had finished. Uh, after his athletic career ended, he became a writing professor at Southern Oregon University in Ashland, Oregon. And in his time there, he authored eight books. And some of my, some of my favorites of his books are Boat, which is his memoir, and Grower's Market, which is his most recent novel. Um, he also wrote for Sports Illustrated, and I link to his Sports Illustrated articles in the show notes to this episode. And beyond his professional work, I think what might be most interesting about him is what he was up to outside of his professional life. And we talk about many of these things on the podcast today. Um, on the podcast, we talk about uh, my opa's uniquely intense youth sports experience and what it was like playing high school football games in front of 30,000 fans. We talk about the consequences of overemphasizing youth sports. We talk about the difficult transitions that many athletes make um, from high school to college, from college to pro, and then what we agree is an especially difficult transition, which is the transition out of one sport when an athlete's career ends. We talk about distance running, we talk about fly fishing and taking advantage of where you happen to live. And then we wade into contemplative practices, which have become of interest to him in recent years. We talk about meditation and how much it's helped him in recent years. We touch on his first psychedelic experience and what he thinks about the reemergence of psychedelics into our culture. And then we finish with his thoughts on what he would look for in a college athletic experience if he were if if he were leaving high school today. And so this was a wide ranging conversation which I really loved having. Oh, and before I forget, um, we recorded this episode about a month ago, and that was before the tragic death of Kobe Bryant. And we actually referenced Kobe a few times in this episode. My opa uses him as an example of someone who had a really sound philosophy for what an athlete should, um, the attitude that an athlete should have when their athletic career ends. Some of the things that Kobe Bryant said when he retired, like, if the next 20 years of my life aren't more impactful and more productive than my 20 years as a player, then I will have failed or I, my life will be somehow incomplete. And so re-listening to this episode and reflecting on some of the things that Kobe was getting up to post-basketball to me makes his death all the more tragic and I'm not I'm not the first person to notice this but it really his death did really show just how much we worship our athletic heroes in our culture and to me it didn't even really seem possible that the superhero or basketball god that is Kobe Bryant could have gone out in such a 
random and cruel way. Um, anyway, yeah, we'll bring up Kobe in this episode, but it was before the event occurred. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Um, as always, you can support the podcast by leaving reviews or by sharing it with people who you think might like it or spreading it on social media, or you can get in touch with me. I really appreciate hearing from the people who listen to this episode. It's been great um, getting so many responses from the first couple episodes, so please reach out if you feel inclined. And now, here is Mike Boffman. here with my opa, Mike Boffman. Uh, opa, thanks for talking to me today. It's a pleasure. What, let's start with your athletic background. Can you describe a little bit about how you, where you were raised and how you got into sports? Well, I was raised in western Pennsylvania uh, near Pittsburgh, which was a town well, more or less dominated by steel mills and those days, and also was well known for being an intensely serious football area. Pennsylvania is still known that way for good reason. But when I was nine years old, I moved about 5,000 miles to uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, which was uh, also an intensely rabid football area of and the odd thing about sports, high school sports in Honolulu, was that they were pretty much all that was available there in those days. Uh, the University of Hawaii didn't pay, play any meaningful games. They competed against Army and Navy teams, uh, young men who were stationed in Schofield Barracks or Pearl Harbor. And so our football games attracted up to 30,000 fans, which was all the Honolulu Stadium would hold. So very coincidentally, I grew up in two areas, 5,000 or more miles apart, that not only emphasized sports, uh, particularly sports for young people, but overemphasized them. Going back to Pennsylvania, I, uh, you know, I played tackle football there starting probably at about the age of seven and uh, left about two years later and picked it up over in Honolulu. So, uh, so you talked about um, how you think it was sports were perhaps overemphasized in your childhood. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, I have no idea why, but the, the Pittsburgh area, there were basically, for those days, at least fanatical football fans. And in Honolulu, high school football could probably be compared to what most of us who care about football know regarding Texas. Uh, where the high school game there is uh, taken extremely seriously by fans of the various towns that compete against one another. But in Honolulu, I think it was even more exaggerated simply because, as I said, there, was, there were no other sports there to compete for spectators. Certainly, they were a long way from, and still are for that matter, from having their own professional teams. And the college team, University of Hawaii, had really nobody compete against. So uh, the football scene was taken deadly seriously. And one of the things that made the competition even more meaningful than I've made it sound so far is the fact that the Interscholastic League, Honolulu Interscholastic League, was uh, 
divided equally between private schools and public schools. I went to a private school, Punahou School. Uh, Which is where Barack Obama went. Yeah, right? uh, Barack Obama went there and essentially not all, but most of the kids from wealthy families went there then and still do. Although when I went, the tuition I think was $300 a year starting in 1949. Now, if I'm not mistaken, it's $18,000 a year. Wow. Uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. So uh, there was resentment and understandable resentment against Punahou in particular from the people that uh, were cheering for the public schools that we competed against. And uh, I, you know, I remember uh, in certain key games at the high school varsity level, we had to wear our helmets running in and out of the stadium because people every once in a while would throw Coke bottles at us or something. <laughs> wow. And uh, the big game in my high school career, Punahou School hadn't won an interscholastic league championship for 29 years. And we won my junior year for the to break that string of uh, non-championship uh, seasons. And, uh, well, uh, it's hard to describe the kinds of celebrations and uh, so forth that went on after we did that. And it's also probably hard to describe or is hard to describe the level of hatred that was leveled against Punahou mm. because they, and it's true, they had gone out and recruited Hawaiian and Samoan players to augment us Haoles, and uh, the, the town knew it. In other words, they were admitted tuition-free because eh, starting in around 7th or 8th grade, it was probably fairly easy for anybody who cared about it to evaluate a football, young football players' potential. So uh, I had many Hawaiian and Samoan teammates, uh, some of them who uh, went on to play professionally. So uh, Punahou then and now is... Uh, not hated, but not certainly respected by a lot of the population of the island of Oahu. And and back then, the animosities came out a little more clearly than they do today. Mm. Uh, but it was a strange environment to grow up with. I don't know of any high school football games anywhere else in America have uh, attracted fans like our games did. Uh, players being featured in headlines and in the sport pages and interviewed on the radio and even on uh, television, which was in its very early form in those days. So uh, when I say about something about overemphasis, that, that was the beginning of it and the epitome of it as, as far as my uh, experience was concerned. I went on to you know, I got a football scholarship, as did, oh, well, we beat uh, the St. Louis uh, <coughs> team. Recently, their most famous graduate is probably Marcus Mariota, who became a professional quarterback. But anyway, uh, we beat them in the uh, championship game. And I figured out later, I went back to a reunion of that game in the 1980s and uh wrote a magazine article about it and interviewed some of the players that showed up. And uh, 
you know, the emotions were still high and we figured out at that uh, reunion that I believe it was uh, a dozen high school kids who played in that championship game in 1954 and got uh, major college football scholarships. And that's, I think you'd probably have a hard time finding uh, a high school f- football game anywhere. Uh, I'd be surprised if you could find one where that many players went on to play at the uh, next level. Yeah, um, that's amazing that your experience was so intense. And um, yeah, 30,000 fans at a high school game is certainly uncommon. And that must have been a lot for a young adolescent to deal with, but also exciting that you had so much success. What, um, tell me about your transition from Punahou to college. How did that come about? Well, I was offered a few scholarships. The whole recruiting system in those days was much less sophisticated than it is now. A lot of colleges and universities had graduates and football fans in Honolulu, and they would send word back to various coaches that they had contact with. Uh, I ended up going to Boston University. They've given up football since, but we played, you know, teams like Penn State, Syracuse, when Jim Brown was there, in fact. Uh, Boston College, of course, that was probably our main rival. And uh, this strange thing is in comparing or contrasting it to Punahou is that I never played in front of as large a crowd in Boston as I did in Honolulu, <laughs> even though it was uh, you know, big-time college football. Uh, yeah. And so, if anything, there was less almost, well, maybe a little less intensity in Boston than there had been in Honolulu when there probably, thinking in today's terms, should have been a lot more. Mm. But uh, there's so, you know, so much difference in just the feeling of those sports and, uh, well, the facilities. Uh, are Well, I ended up working out with the Detroit Lions a few years later and they didn't have their own facilities then they had to fit themselves in uh at uh, the university of michigan in ann arbor which is fairly close to detroit and the locker room was similar to what you'd find in a middle school these days uh just there just wasn't the money Uh, guys playing for detroit often had summer jobs to sort of stay solvent economically, selling cars or uh, working for some company or other with an eye toward what would happen in the future. One of the boys, young men, I should say, I guess I played for at, uh, played with at Punahou was Al Harrington, who was actually a Samoan. His last name was Ta'a, T-A-A, and he was adopted by the, uh, a mother and father named Harrington and went to Punahou and then played very well at Stanford after that, was offered a contract to play for the Baltimore Colts, but he wasn't even interested because he could make more money going back to Punahou and teaching history there. So uh, clearly uh, things have changed in enormous ways uh, over the years. And well, that's another form of overemphasis, I guess. Honestly, I find it kind of, absurd that uh, and I have respect for good athletes and I know how good they have to be in relation to the people they're competing with and against but 
to pay people five or 10 or even $25 million a year. And I think I've heard of higher salaries than that. Uh, I honestly, as a human being, don't quite get it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, you know, the difference between your era and the current era is, you know, back then there was not even enough of a market to support the best athletes around, but now it's become so absurd that it's almost just like a joke how much athletes are paid. Well, and well it's thanks to te- television. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you, most of us have read about what television, television is willing to pay uh, to, to broadcast the NFL games and uh, the NBA games and all that and well, lots yeah. of other games too. But I'm not sure anybody's to blame for the situation and you certainly can't blame the athletes for taking the money that they can get for doing what they do. But uh, I don't see how you could argue that uh, their pay scale in relation to other occupations that are, let's face it, oh, more... Uh, Conse- in, consequential? Well, or? more consequential, right? That, yeah. Uh, uh, there's, sports are beautiful, and I'm glad I did it. And... Uh, well, going back to Punahou, I, you know, let's see how long ago is 1954, 62 or three years or something. Anyway, uh, when I meet up with the the guys I played with, no matter if I haven't seen them for 10 or 15 years, in some cases, we're instantly friends again because of what we did together and went through together. Yeah. And, uh, Honestly, in my case, I consider that more important than any amount of money could be. So. Right. Yeah, I have the same experience. It's a the the bond you create when competing in high pressure environments, <clears throat> when you have to depend on each other, is really special. And it's something that I, having finished my organized playing career, I really value as well. Um, so you. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about something you've mentioned to me before, which is the transition, the difficult transition that many athletes have out of sports. Um, and you've seen your ex-teammates and former athletes for decades deal with this transition. Um, what are your thoughts on that transition? Well, there's, of course, as you might expect, a world of difference between those outcomes. Uh, you, I'm sure, know as, at least as well as I do that uh when you're competing, even in high school and, and certainly in college, uh, and especially these days compared to my days, but you, you have to take the sport seriously and coaches uh, try as hard as they can to make sure you take it seriously at the expense of other things. There are responsible coaches, I think, and major, major college football even still today that would actually like to see their players get something out of a four-year university education. There are other coaches who don't give a damn about it, I'm sure. They, yeah. They're competing hard for their jobs and they have to win. And the way they can win is getting more or less complete devotion from their uh, players. But, uh, yeah, I've, well, I've seen everything from what you could call success, and by that I don't mean money, people who have played football in high school and college and even in a couple of cases professionally and came out of it with other interests, other 
uh, directions that they could take in life and made a fine transition. On the other hand, one of my best friends uh, became an alcoholic soon after he got finished playing football and he never had a what you could call a decent job. Uh, he never had a, what you could call a, a decent marriage uh, or much. And he was not a dumb kid. Uh, he was nice. He was kind. Uh, and uh, yet he was also a very good football player. And when he couldn't do that anymore, he, he fell apart. And I, I'm sure and, and other acquaintances of done the same kind of thing, not to the extreme that he did. I mean, his life ended when he was, you know, in his 20s, mm -hmm. and uh, he didn't die then, but... Uh, Essentially ended, right? Yeah. Uh, his remaining years, and I think he died when he was in his 60s, uh, were nothing that most people would want to go through. And uh, I have a feeling that's still happening maybe even more so than it used to. Uh, other poor kids who dream about playing professionally and maybe one out of every five or 10,000 of them actually gets that far. And uh, there's all sorts of uh, very negative outcomes when you're talking about uh, an average college athlete who's good at his sport and good enough to get a scholarship and, and with luck at least, uh, responsible enough to get a degree from a university, uh, he, he has a chance. Although I think you certainly know too that it's very common for college athletes to take, to, to major in fields that, well, aren't really very promising when it comes to future employment. Uh, yeah. I have saw my share of those too. And, uh, well, I, I remember uh, even back when I was playing and connections I had with other athletes at other colleges and universities that it wasn't uncommon in either football or basketball for a player to just quit school after his eligibility was used up his senior year football or basketball season. Then they just yeah. left, yeah. Uh, never got a degree, never even tried to get a degree or probably never even thought much about it. And yeah. that's a kind of tragedy that uh, really is. Yeah. Uh, and I've definitely experienced that. Um, Tom Wolfe writes really powerfully about that in his novel, I Am Charlotte Simmons, which is the the social pressures, you know, in basketball and football and baseball culture. You know, I've, I've known friends in all of those sports who say similar things about it, that there is a it's difficult to look far enough ahead to plan out a direction after your sport ends because when you're 18 years old and you enroll at a university, all you're worried about is fitting in socially and doing well at your sport. And so it's easy to sign up for, to mindlessly sign up for a <clears throat> academic path. And even, you know, beyond that to just to do nothing else productive outside of sports and hanging with your friends so that, you know, you're not, developing any other interests so when your career ends it feels kind of like a death and that that transition can be difficult and it certainly was for me too the first year after my playing career when I realized I didn't have another season to train for I felt this jarring lack of direction 
and the responsibility to create my own disciplined path and maintain some of the good habits that I had maintained as an athlete was overwhelming. And I definitely struggled with that. And it's been hard without the external pressure to be ready to perform, to maintain that level of intensity. Yeah. There's a big empty spot in your life when you suddenly realize you're not going to be doing this in any truly meaningful way ever again, as long as you live and you're still a young person. Another element to it that still strikes me, and I know I experienced it, uh, when I was young, I was confident and optimistic about almost everything. I was yeah. sure that things would go, were going to work out. Uh, whether or not I got an A or a C- minus in a class, that very little, if any, significance, because uh, I wasn't being realistic about the future. I was just assuming that everything would be all right, or, or a majority of young people still that naive. Yeah, and I don't know if it's even consciously thinking that everything will be fine. But yeah, I had that, you know, you're kind of put in this pipeline of, especially as a scholarship athlete, you think, yeah, I'll go to my university and play my sport and get my degree and then I'll get my job and everything will be okay. But once you, your career starts to wind down and you start to realize that finding a fulfilling and lucrative job is difficult in the modern economy, you suddenly realize that that path, that pleasant path that you thought you were on really isn't as clear as you may have been implicitly led on to believe. And yes, I think, like you mentioned earlier, the incentives that <coughs> college coaches operate under, and even high school for that matter, yeah. to win. And in order to win, you want your players together at all times. So it's hard, you know, you can be at a university with many different types of people and subcultures, but really only hang out with your teammates and none of the other avenues that life has to offer can even seep into that environment. And I certainly experienced that. I'm lucky to have influences like you and um, some other thoughtful family members that warned me of that. But it actually took some adversity in my sport to even think away outside of basketball, which paradoxically I'm grateful for. Yeah. And again, I may well sound like I'm oversimplifying everything, but uh, oh, there are exceptions. There always have been, and I'm sure always will be. I Just this past season, uh, a very good defensive lineman, I think, from the Baltimore team, quit football to get keep going and working on his MI, uh, PhD in math at MIT. And uh, one of the league's best place kickers, uh, there was a segment on a sports show that uh, he's actually an opera singer along with being a place kicker. And I think people like that deserve an awful lot of respect. Mm -hmm. their, uh, their lives have so much more dimension than, than uh, someone who's just completely enveloped in his sport, no matter what the sport is or how good you happen to be at it. I think you mentioned once uh, or wrote a uh, quote of Kobe Bryant's who said something to the effect that if the next 20 years didn't turn out to be even more productive than his basketball career, he'd figure he was doing something wrong. That yes. He didn't think his life was over. It was really just beginning again. And 
Uh, I don't know how that's going to turn out, but I think it's probably a, a pretty rare attitude among athletes. Yes, uh, but a useful one. And yeah, I, I admire him saying that. And he's had some very interesting things to say about that in AAU culture. It sounds like he's thinking deeply about some of the issues that young athletes go through. And I know he has daughters that are playing sports, so he's probably trying to help them go through some of the same stuff that he went through and that all of us are going through. So you're, after your organized playing career, you have took some interesting athletic paths in adulthood. How did you get into distance running? Well, uh, I have my son to thank for that. He became uh, identifiable when he was probably sixth or seventh grade when you know, the teachers and coaches just had the kids go out and run around the track a few times. Uh, when if, if you'd ever seen him run, you'd realize, well, seen a good distance runner, like when you watch a marathon with all those Kenyans and Ethiopians out front of everybody. They, they're beautiful runners. And mm-hmm. Pete, my son, was too. And so sometime, I mean, I've been active in different things, uh, hunting, fishing, and uh, the kind of hunting fishing we do in Oregon is a lot different than most people might imagine. Hunting meant walking 12, 14 miles a day over rough country looking for mountain quail, which are very elusive birds, and fishing meant walking up and down the banks and wading and casting for uh, steelhead fly fishing. That kept me in decent shape, but anyway, finally, I went down, I just wanted to run a couple laps with Pete to see what it was like. And uh, I did half a mile and I went pretty fast for me because I was running with him and he was going at his normal speed. And I was stiff and sore for about a week afterwards and absolutely astounded at what had happened to me. I was you know, still in my thirties then and I hadn't gained much weight, but uh, I, it, was shocking that I got tired and even stiff after uh, a half mile run. So uh, I kept running and slowly worked my way up. And people say you get addicted to running. And I think it's true. I did. But I think within any reason, uh, within reason, it's uh, a very positive addiction. So yeah, I ended up starting to run in 10Ks and 15Ks and half marathons and marathons and and uh, some 50 milers and tried a couple of hundred milers, but I never had quite made it because I really didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah, but uh, uh, it saved me from uh, a fate that looking at what happens to people generally, again, you see this, you've seen the same thing already. You've been out of uh, college now for long enough to have seen some of your teammates who two or three or four years already after they've quit playing have gained 30 or 40 pounds. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm, okay, I know you're not supposed to criticize anybody for anything much anymore, but let's face it, uh, you're better off if you stay at a reasonable weight and in good cardiovascular shape. So yeah, my son got me into running, and I'm still doing it now. Well, I don't know, 45 years later after I started, and I'm glad I'm not doing as much of it, or certainly not as fast or anything. But uh, 
that that doesn't matter. And so uh, I'm lucky that Pete turned into a good distance runner. He's still running. He's 57 now and looks about 37. He does. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, because he's still in in shape as well. I think that's important. Uh, and that, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's sad that so many talented athletes somehow don't see any reason to keep being physically active after their competitive career is over with. Uh, and it's, 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 it's a very sad thing as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and a very common thing. I don't know what the percentages would be, but sometimes it, well, sometimes it's shocking. I was, a friend of mine got me to enter the hundred mile Western States endurance run. I was about 42 then and so was he and he won it and uh, I had to drop out after either 70 or 80 miles because I hadn't been eating right and my my legs were okay but my stomach wasn't but here's the point I'm getting at I was also writing a Sports Illustrated article about that run and so I interviewed some of the runners the day before the the, the event and one guy who's you know considered to be a possible winner, although he didn't win. But uh, I asked him the day before, well, if you won this, what would be your next goal or some such thing? And he said, no goal at all. I'm just going to drink beer for the rest of my life and get fat. And I think he meant it. Uh, And again, not a very reasonable attitude as far as I can determine whether or not he did that. well, of course, he didn't win, but in any case, I hope that he didn't under any circumstances keep his promise about what he was going to do when he quit running. Right. Uh, yeah, well, um, yeah, the fact that you found an outlet to channel some of your, you know, athletic interests and to stay in shape and to get the jolt of competition, I think that's really beautiful and something that I'm still working to cultivate and find, you know, different things to get into since my playing career has ended. And you mentioned fly fishing and I will have introduced you before the podcast. Um, but I'll say it again here that you're very, very acclaimed fly fisherman in Oregon. And I think your most popular book was a book about the North Umpqua river and fly fishing it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, want to talk a little bit about, how you found the sport to be so beautiful and maybe even the depressing fact that some of the rivers are starting to lose their fish? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know, knew almost nothing about fly fishing when we moved up here. We came in 1966, 53 years ago, but I was fascinated by fly fishing, just having seen film clips probably pretty brief ones here and there. And so I just decided, uh, I'll sidetrack myself for just a minute. I've always been uh, curious and surprised at the fact that uh, people don't take advantage of what's available where they happen to live. You know, I grew up in Hawaii, and so naturally I spearfished and surfed there. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I had grown up in the Swiss Alps, I'm pretty sure I would have become a skier. And when I came to uh, 
Oregon uh, knew that various rivers, and specifically the North Umpqua, were famous summer steelhead rivers. Steelhead, of course, are seagoing rainbow trout that grow to be, well, in the North Umpqua, a, a good sized fish is six or eight pounds, a big fish is 10 or 12 pounds, and the biggest fish you're likely to catch up there, 15 pounds, and some even bigger than that. Not a fly rod, that's a really exciting. So uh, I just decided to learn to do it, and it took a while. Uh, you know, you have to face the fact that you're not going to catch any fish or catch any very few fish for the first few years. But, uh, you know, again, just the, the river, that river, I've fished others, but that's what we call here your home river, is very beautiful. Uh, 30-some miles of it are restricted to fly fishing only, so that definitely helps. And uh, the camp up there for a few days, and eventually my wife Hilda and I uh, leased a little cabin up there that we could stay at for days or even weeks at a time if we wanted to. She learned, oh, she's from Germany, uh, where fly fishing is basically a rich person's uh, pastime, but uh, she's probably landed more North Umpqua summer steelhead on a fly rod than any woman who ever lived. And that's uh, not an important fact, but just, I think, an indication of what I tried to define before, that it makes perfect sense to take advantage of the places you happen to be or even have to be. I got a, a teaching job here at the university, and uh, it's, a, it's a nice town, and it's nice country, and fly fishing just seemed like a natural extension of life here to mm -hmm. me. And uh, so if you do something long enough and often enough, you get pretty good at it. And uh, But I should also hasten to say, I don't think, you know, if we're talking about competitive athletics, fly fishing certainly shouldn't be one. Mm -hmm. They have fishing competitions, but that's not just absurd. To me, it's disgusting because <laughs> yeah. uh, what's so wonderful about fly fishing a river like the North Umpqua is just being there, you know, up to your waist, uh, in the beautiful moving water and all the sort of wildlife around and casting and paying attention to what you're doing. Oh, it's definitely a form of meditation, a form of relaxation. And uh, well, I, it's, I love it. I don't do it as often as I should. And one of the reasons is what you mentioned. Uh, yeah, uh, the Northwest's coastal rivers are being destroyed systematically for the normal American reason. Uh, there's money be to be made, uh, and money's always more important than almost anything else in our culture. Uh, first and foremost, I guess you would have to blame logging, clear-cutting. Uh, there's mountains up there that are basically shaved bald, you might say, and when the, the shade is gone from the water, the water warms up and, and the young fish especially die. And uh, well, there's pollution naturally and uh, dam building, uh, all of those things have, well, I think the best, in the best month of fishing I ever had up there, this was already in the 80s, they used to count the fish that went by Winchester Dam into the upper North Umpqua River, and 
I think uh, one July, there were over 15,000 summer steelhead that went up in that one month. Recently, there have been two or 3,000 summer steelhead in a whole year, so that's some indication of how horribly the runs have declined. And there's nothing to suggest that the rivers will ever recover from that. I'm sorry about that because uh, a lot of people young people in particular missing out on something that could be a wonderful pastime yeah uh, <clears throat> just fun not competition not, but but uh we'll see uh climate change uh, is of course should be a major concern to everybody and and the coastal rivers are one entity that's being destroyed by the other factors i mentioned and of course, the overall warming and everything yeah. that's going on too. Too bad. Uh, and uh, I'm afraid there's not much any of us can do about it. Yeah. Well, that might be an interesting segue into the contemplative practices that I am sort of blending into this podcast along with my interest in athletics. <clears throat> you spoke of a monk who was a fly fisherman but didn't use a hook. Is that right? Uh, a, a Buddhist, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, he started out, well, most of us up there have released our fish for years now. Why, well, there's two kinds of steelhead, wild steelhead and hatchery <coughs> steelhead. The hatchery fish are identified because the adipose fin, the fin on, on the uh, near the tail on the top of the fish is clipped off before the smolts are released to go out to the ocean and grow and come back. So you can identify hatchery fish. You're doing a river a favor if you kill them because <clears throat> if they survive to spawn, it's been pretty well proved now scientifically that they just pollute the native gene pool and further diminish the chances of native fish surviving. Mm. But uh, getting back to the crucial element in this, uh, for oh, as long, far back as I can remember, uh, nobody I know has ever killed a wild fish up there. They let them go, and uh, so the guy that you're referring to, uh, he started off fishing with barbless hooks like almost all of us do, and releasing all the wild fish that he caught, and uh, eventually he just decided he didn't need to to land a fish. He just clipped the, uh, the whole points, the points off his hooks and cast, and a fish would come up and hit the fly and he'd get a little jolt and then the fish would be gone and uh, that was adequate and so it was sufficient for him and uh, he's the only one I know that's ever gone that far but uh, I admire him for it. He's also the same guy uh, who there was a steelhead pool this is another factor in the diminishment of the runs up uh, Steamboat Creek is a major tributary of the North Umpqua and there's uh, about 12 miles up Steamboat Creek, there's a huge pool that collects, oh, it's had in the old days up to 500 steelhead in it by July or August. Now, not nearly so many, but they still gather there. And uh, he's been up there for 15 years to guard the pools day and night because people, local people were dynamiting the pool and killing all the fish in it. Uh, mm. during low water summer months, and uh, he put a stop to that. But uh, yeah, uh, 
he was a conservationist in the truest sense of the word. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I want to get back to contemplative practice in a second, but I don't want to forget about your eccentric um, hunting style that there was a, you were profiled in the New York Times, I think, right? Interviewed. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'll link to that article in the show notes. But can you speak about, what is it, is it called tracking? Is that what it's called? Running down a deer? Running down a deer. Well, the truth is, the important element is that is where you do it, where you can keep a deer in sight long enough. I mean, it's been proved. You know, when I first wrote that up and it was published in Sports Illustrated, people were calling me a liar. And uh, since then, uh, a doctor who's also a runner did research among other people and Human beings apparently were genetically designed to be able to run down animals mm. uh, and to have more endurance than sprinters like deer. So, I mean, of course, a deer can disappear in a hurry when you uh, come upon one out in the wild. But the country that I did that in was quite open. Uh, there were ugh, occasional trees, an apple orchard in one place that's mentioned. Uh, willow groves along an irrigation ditch. Uh, and so it didn't matter if a deer was a quarter or a half mile ahead of you. If you kept going and kept it going, uh, you know, they tire out pretty quickly. Any reasonably fit distance runner in the right kind of country uh, could do what I did. And it's not a great physical feat, but, but you definitely need to be in shape, but uh, it's really human beings uh, functioning the way they were designed to function before we had butcher shops and grocery stores and mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, I think there's some, I, I think the doctor uh, who did some of this work is uh, online and he and her, he's, the, the one who interviewed me, in fact. And oh, really? It's on, you know, if you look my name and Deer Runner or something, it'll come up. It's on, and the New York, he, he was writing for the New York Times, and then it's also on the internet and explains some of the details of it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, my friend Frank Moore, who's sort of the most famous fly fisherman on the North Umpqua, he's done that more than once in his life, and he's the one that told me about it and gave mm -hmm. me the idea about it. Uh, just you know, tiring out a deer that way. Yeah. Uh, not to hurt it or harm it or anything, just to see if you could do it. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And I guess we'll keep bouncing into interesting things you've done. You, as you mentioned, you you know you're a college professor, college professor at Southern Oregon University, a writing professor, and you also wrote for Sports Illustrated. I was scouring through your old articles and I found one where you wrote about spending a week in the woods alone with a limited number of supplies. Can you talk about that experience? Well, yeah, that was up in the North Umpqua country. All I did was park up there above Steamboat Creek and walk, I guess it would have been north, if I recall correctly, into the woods and ending up where I had no idea really where I was. And I had some fish hooks with me and uh, a shotgun and a couple of shells and I just basically wanted to see what it would be like to survive that way for that length of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
So I, I wrote it up you know, for Sports Illustrated again. And I guess the conclusions I drew were that uh, without distractions, uh, you almost have to become a philosopher. I couldn't turn on the TV or the radio or even pick up a magazine or a book to read. Uh, I had to find stuff to eat, keep myself warm at night as best I could, and uh, and I did. And you know, there's hours of boredom and discomfort, but you kind of adjust to that after a while. I was glad, honestly, when it was over, but uh, I was also glad that I did it. And that was the main takeaway, that when you eliminate uh, all the distractions that are, and let's face it, there are more of them all the time. We live in the, you know, the smartphone video game uh, era now. But when all that stuff is gone, you actually have to think. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of a revelation. And maybe it's one that more people should go through. Uh, we all know people who can basically not exist without some form of so-called entertainment uh, in front of themselves. To uh, well, a friend of mine used to say television was just a way to show people something while they got drunk, and that was <laughs> something of an overstatement. But I get the point, and it's not too far from the truth, I don't think. So yeah, that was an experiment, and uh, not in distance running, but just in the mental uh, necessities that sort of crop up when you're all by yourself and there's really nothing to do except eat and sleep and stay alive. Yeah. Uh, and, well. Yeah, well, that's, it sounds similar to my experience when I've been on meditation retreats where you're not permitted to read right exercise of course your phones are turned in when you get there mm -hmm. and all you have to do is sit and meditate periodically not for the entire day but for about 12 hours a day mm -hmm. and it is amazing how much more open i like what you said about you're forced to become a philosopher now on a meditation retreat you're supposed to pay attention to your thoughts mm -hmm. and come back to the present moment but in breaks and other various periods throughout a standard day on retreat, I find myself drifting off inevitably at some points and just the depth of thoughts when you aren't worried about your next plan or what you're going to do at the grocery store or how you might appear socially. It is interesting how different it can be in that situation. Now, you have discovered some of these contemplative practices later in your life. Um, I don't, I think meditation and other contemplative methods was fairly eccentric and probably clouded with some bullshit, to be frank, uh, when you were growing up. Can you talk a bit about your recent interest in contemplative practices and maybe um, what you've noticed in how the Western culture has begun to accept them in recent years? Well, yeah, the first thing, I thank my son Pete for inspiring me to run, and I thank you and your brother Jake for introducing me to meditation. Uh, so, 
you know, my, my son helped me preserve my body and you and your brother are helping me preserve my <laughs> mind. And I'm serious about that. I mean, meditation has proved to me to be just so valuable. Uh, and I doubt that I would have ever, you know, and when I was your age, all of those pursuits were pretty much disdained, especially, I guess I could say, by, by athletes. Uh, maybe that's not quite fair, but I always remember the, one of the scenes in the natural, the baseball movie, Robert Redford played a character named Roy Hobbs, who, who was on a losing team and the manager brought in somebody who was in his hopeless way trying to talk about meditation and mind control and he, he was just presented as a complete idiot and an oaf, and uh, the players were disdainful, and Roy Hobbs stomped out of the locker room, uh, just furious that, um, that, that the manager would introduce this kind of, as you said, bullshit. But uh, well, we're past that now, and yeah, it's uh, athletes have begun to accept it. I guess we mentioned Kobe Bryant, earlier and uh, Michael Jordan I think is well known to have done his meditation to good advantage and a, a lot of athletes are doing it and a lot of other people are too. It's one of those things that takes a while to gain acceptance. I suppose certain elements in our culture uh, would look back at oh, Allen Ginsberg and the beatniks and then the so-called hippies and you know, they were into that kind of stuff or at least pretended to be therefore it must be nonsense but it's not nonsense uh it's <clears throat> something that's been respected for centuries in various parts of the world and thankfully it's beginning to gain acceptance here by more and more people uh and uh, sometimes surprising the people you hear that mention that they meditate and how much good it does them it's done me a lot of a lot of good, and I intend to keep pushing it as far as I can for sure. I'm not sure that answers what you. Yeah, no, asked, I am. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been fascinating to see that you seem like a <clears throat> a bit of a natural of the people I've spoken to who have developed a practice. I think your time, distance running and fly fishing and spending time alone in the woods, um, does prepare you for something like you mentioned before operating without distraction in a way that I think many of us in the culture, I certainly was a harder case at this. It was, I think more difficult for me to get into it, but, um, the, the experiences that you've described already are really interesting. And, um, it'd be, I'd be interested to see how you did on a meditation retreat. I think you'd, I think you'd enjoy it. And it's a, it's been great to see how your practice has developed. Well, I'm, yeah, I might try that sometime soon. Uh, I, I certainly think it would be fun. I was going to say interesting, but we agreed in regard <laughs> to a movie a while back that that's a non-word, as they say in Captain Fantastic. But uh, yeah, maybe it works sometimes. I would just be curious, let's put it that way, as to how uh, one of those retreats would affect me and how I would deal with it and what would be the ultimate result and uh, it certainly 
I don't know how something like that could hurt anybody. It could only help them. Yeah. Uh, and at worst, it could just end up to be a neutral experience, I suppose. But I don't think that would happen. Yeah. Uh, so on that note, as you've begun to explore, by the way, I, I really admire you for being willing to explore new eccentric topics later in your life. I mean, the, the influence that you've had on me and my brother and my cousin, the whole family has been tremendous. But um, it's just, it's not surprising, but it is really inspiring to see that you're still willing to take risks and try new things and um, stay mentally and physically engaged as you um, get older. It's been really great to see. And, and one clear example was a couple of days ago, you took your first um, dose of magic mu psilocybin magic mushrooms with my brother and I. And we had a, in my opinion, a just a tremendous day, a bonding experience together out in your backyard that was a day that I'll always remember. Um, do you have any thoughts or reflections a couple of days after your first trip? Oh, sure. I will always remember it too. I thought it was great. Uh, I had no hesitation in doing it and no regrets afterwards. I'm looking forward to well, sooner or later doing it again. No, that uh, was great. It, uh, I don't know. We were together five or six hours and it seemed like maybe an hour and a half yeah. talking pretty much the whole time. And uh, well, I had the physical and I guess in internal experiences that uh, I was expecting, except it was more enjoyable even than I thought it might be. Oh, you have to realize, and, uh, and thanks for, oh, uh, admiring the fact that I was willing to do something that uh, a lot of older people probably wouldn't, but I'm kind of, I resent what's been done to the reputation and how destructive what's been done has been to the potential good things that uh, psychedelics can do. I mean, Hilda and I lived in San Francisco, which was the very heart of hippiedom in the early to mid 60s, when that stuff was first being used, LSD predominantly then. And, and now looking back, the kind of uh, lying, almost evil sort of reactions that the establishment, as we call it, had to, to that is, is it's disturbing. Uh, just the other day, uh, actually, I guess it was just yesterday, they had a segment on 60 Minutes about psilocybin and you know, the mushrooms and how they're being used in so many constructive ways and uh, interviewed Michael Pollan, who wrote the fine book, which I've read, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, and research now has at least gone so far as to encourage the use of uh, psilocybin specifically in treating all sorts of disorders from PTSD to nicotine and alcohol addiction. Uh, end of life, fear of death, uh, and so on. Uh, the interesting, or let's just say relevant thing that I've heard recently was a podcast. I can't remember who made the comment. Uh, I guess it was on a Joe Rogan thing, and maybe he said it, that it's fine that we're finally accepting 
psychedelics, psilocybin most specifically, uh, to treat people with serious disorders. But uh, he thinks the real test will be when we allow it to be used by people who are presumably healthy. I think the analogy he used was that uh, you know, banning psilocybin from people who aren't addicted to anything or aren't suffering from PTSD is like uh, banning vitamin pills from anybody who's healthy. Yeah, uh, It just doesn't make sense because, uh, you know, just from my first experience uh, a couple days ago, I, uh, I firmly believe that uh, it's, it can be a very positive force. We talked, I know, about microdosing when all kinds of responsible and gifted people are taking very tiny doses of uh, psilocybin, not daily, but periodically, and it, it seems to keep them more alert, more awake, more perceptive. And uh, I even think I experienced that, uh, uh, and I think still maybe am. It's, it hasn't been that long ago. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I, I noticed that when I'm gliding down from a macro dose, which we we took a small macro dose. Mm-hmm. Um, that you, you may like when the, when the drug's wearing off, you get some of that mental clarity. Actually, my brother and I went from here, from your house to Lithia Park and we decided <laughs> to do a cold plunge while we were still mm-hmm. slightly high on psilocybin. And that was a pretty powerful experience. And it's just, it does, there's some confusion behind it because it's calling psilocybin drugs and and also heroin drugs putting everything in the same category yeah. as drugs is confusing because psilocybin lsd dmt peyote that the, the psychedelics you know there are others that i didn't mention are almost antithetical to the drugs that are abused you know these drugs require courage to take them they can they're not taken just to have a good time and if you if you have that intention going into it you might in for a rude awakening, you know, their, their journeys and their healing and their to be respected. And the, the, what you notice when you take a big dose is the last thing you want to do is take another one. It's unlike drugs of addiction. So it's been, you know, and yeah, if I, if I've been pushing the family in the meditative direction and, you know, Pete got us into running, it's, it's been interesting to how our family has influenced each other in various ways. And I think we can thank my little brother, Jake, for pushing us to open our minds and read books and listen to podcasts about the power of psychedelics because, you know, when I went through college, I would have placed acid and cocaine in the same category of just destructive drug and, you know, having Jake to help um, urge us to think differently about that has been really helpful. And that, yeah, that experience we had a couple days ago was really wonderful. So I'm grateful for that. Well, yeah, as you know, Jake and I came back not too long ago from a driving trip in his van from southern Oregon to southern Baja and back. And so we talked a lot about that on the way and listened to some podcasts, which I think is where the information I just tried to summarize came from. And yeah, he's uh, remarkably informed and thoughtful and convincing about the whole subject and mm-hmm. uh, well I'm glad I'm it's nice if older generations can positively influence 
the younger people, but there's no reason the younger people can't do the same thing in return to older folks who far too often are just absolutely unwilling to to change their minds about anything. And that, yeah. That's really too bad. Uh, and it's too common as well, I think. Too. Well, it's the least we could do, given your tremendous influence over us and um, all of the wonderful books that you've loaned us and had us read. It's been it's been a really positive well, I'm glad relationship. Good. Um, last question. Uh, let's circle back to athletics. Let's pretend that you were uh, graduating high school this year. What kind of things would you look for in a college program if you were a young man or a young woman who were looking to play at the next level? Well, for one thing, I mean, I barely thought about the academic side of Boston University. It's a good school. I, I found out much later that Martin Luther King was registered there at the same time I was. Mm. Uh, he was getting his doctorate in something, and uh, I was just a freshman that had no idea what uh, I was going to do. I, I started out majoring in business, which was the wrong thing for me. I mean, believe me, I have nothing against business or businessmen, uh, but it wasn't a life that I would have enjoyed that much. So uh, you know, I ended up, of course, changing my major a couple times before I finally figured out what I did want. But getting back to your question, I you know, think a lot harder about academics than I did when it happened to me. I try to find out more about the program, which would have been difficult in those days. Uh, and still not impossible. You know, how, what kind of a record do they have? Uh, what kind of reputation does the coach have? Find out if you can, which, uh, how satisfied the players are. Uh, and actually I ended up at a pretty good place. The, the, the coaches were, were good, less intense, I'm sure than most coaches are today. Uh, I would think about the part of the country I was going to. Mm -hmm. I went from Hawaii to Boston, which meant by the middle of November in my first football season, I thought I was going to freeze to death. I mean, I was used to playing games and 80 some degree temperatures, maybe a night game, it would get down to 78. But, uh, you know, there I was in Boston and it was 12 degrees or something. Mm. And uh, that didn't make any sense. So I, I just suggest that people find out as much as they can about the school, about the place, about the program, too. And I think it's probably, you know, what with the internet and everything, it, it's, it's easier now than it used to be. Well, especially if you were in Hawaii. Nobody made campus visits, for instance, from Hawaii that I ever heard of. Mm. You uh, accepted a scholarship and went there and found out what it was like after you arrived. Yeah. So the opportunities are there now for today's athletes to, to really try to find something out. Uh, I suppose most athletes are most interested in the success of the program, and they'd rather sign up uh, in a place where, you know, there's a winning record and all that. Uh, but, oh, I know you've written about trying to find the right level and everything. And as you say, you'd be much better off going to a lower division, a smaller school, 
that's a place you might like to be than sitting on a bench for four years or whatever at Ohio State or yeah. Clemson. I mean, uh, I don't get what fun that would be. You're really just there to be sort of dummies for the guys who actually play to yeah. uh, work out on. And That's another element, though. Pardon me for getting all the different elements of this kind of mixed up, but uh, it used to be almost unheard of to transfer as a college athlete. Now it's not. And there's a positive side to that, but when I look at it at the pro level, when I used, you know, when I went to San Francisco Giant baseball games when we lived down there, the same guys were on the team year after year after year. Willie Mays, Orlando Cepedo, the Alou brothers, Harvey Keen, you know, they seemed like now, uh, my God, uh, nobody has any, uh, well, what, uh, any feeling of not responsibility, just camaraderie of mm -hmm. uh, just teamwork, uh, the kind of dedication to one team, one organization, one whatever. Uh, that's missing today. And, yeah. Uh, maybe it has something to do with the, the fact that, you know, you find learn things uh, while you're there and uh, much more readily than you could in the old days. Somehow we seem more isolated back in the 50s. Uh, you went someplace and you kind of couldn't imagine being anywhere else, mm -hmm. which means maybe it was more important back then than it is now to make sure you pick the right place. But still, obviously, a young athlete who's looking beyond his athletic career should look at the school as a school and not just as a team. Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, it's complicated, but... Uh, no, I think those are great. Just being aware of the fact that your athletic life is going to end and that you're going to have to do something afterwards and so forth. Uh, not very many of us are Kobe Bryant's and the like. Yeah. Uh, and uh, even he apparently felt that what happens to the rest of his life is as or more important than what he did when he was playing basketball. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think those are all really important things to keep in mind. And, uh, just remembering myself and how, um, no, you know, I don't blame anyone for this. I just kind of the athletic culture, how I had a hard time even imagining life at college. I was more concerned with my reputation in my hometown than the kind of fit yeah. that I would find. And yeah, I mean, it, paradoxically, my, my struggles in college ultimately ended up helping me, but I could imagine have gone to going to a different school or a different program and having a more sustainable, enjoyable college career. And so that's a question I'm always interested in. Well, um, I think we covered most everything. I think we bounced around a lot, but it was really yeah. a pleasure talking to you. Is there anything you think we missed? Well, one more thing, what you just mentioned, that you were lucky enough that your not positive experiences ended up to be positive, and uh, that's something nobody should forget. Luck has probably uncomfortably too much to do with what becomes of us as athletes or people or anything else. I mean, anybody who wants to look back at his life honestly can figure out that if certain relatively trivial things, or at least they seem so at the time, hadn't happened, 
Mm -hmm. uh, we'd be someplace else doing something else under who knows what circumstances. So there's nothing we can do about our luck except hope that it's good. Hope for the best. All right. Well, it's really great talking to you. Um, well, thanks. Uh, as always, and uh, I guess we'll continue our conversations. And I'd love to have you back on here at some point if this keeps going. So, okay, thanks for coming on. Good. Thank you.